Mark 15 verse 16 to 21 the soldiers took him away into the palace that is the praetorium and they gathered together the whole Roman cohort they dressed him in purple and after twisting a crown of thorns they put it on him and they began to acclaim him hail king of the Jews they kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him after they had mocked him they took the purple robe off him and put on his own garments and they led him out to crucify him they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country of Cyrene Simon the father of Alexander and Rufus to bear his cross please be seated let's come to God in prayer before we consider those words in Mark 15 Father we again thank you for your word in our lives the word that literally transforms us causes us to grow, to mature therefore as we consider your word we pray that you'll open it to our hearts by the, the power of your Holy Spirit that we will learn and grow and mature but most importantly we will put into practice that we won't just be hearers of your word we will be doers help us to do this therefore to be able to honour you and worship you more meaningfully and I pray that you'll open my mouth to speak your word for your glory this morning Amen So in Mark 15 we come to, to Mark's account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ which will go on for a number of chapters and I want to look at it in three parts the first part I want to look at is this passage here Mark 15 verse 16 to 21 and when you think about the crucifixion what most people tend to immediately think of and immediately focus upon is the physical suffering the horror the pain, the anguish of a crucifixion and the usual images in people's minds are obviously of Jesus on a cross with wounds to his head from the crowns of thorns with blood and the pain and we've seen that image many many times it's a horrifying image people are repulsed by the idea of virtually hanging naked in the blazing sun and so they should be and worse than that for people to be walking past gaping and gawking Adding to that the horrors of the scourging, we can only conclude that this is the most horrendous kind of torture that has ever been devised by men. But as bad as it is, that's not what the Bible focuses on. And also, it wasn't the thought of the physical suffering that traumatised Jesus in the garden. What was so wrenching to him, what really caused him anguish, wasn't the thought of the physical suffering, as horrible and painful and full of anguish that that would be, but what caused him to really be in anguish was the anticipation of divine wrath, God's wrath falling on him, the anticipation of him drinking the cup of God's wrath against sinners as being the, the substitute, the, the one who would take the punishment of all people who have ever sinned and that's why he prays in, in C, uh, three separate prayers if, if it's possible take this cup from me the cup meaning the, the full amount of wrath the full amount of God's wrath falling upon him so from Jesus viewpoint it wasn't the physical suffering that posed the real horror of the cross don't get me wrong the physical pain was absolutely horrendous and agonizing but the real agony as far as Jesus was concerned was the separation from the Father and the bearing of sin. 
And this is also why the four Gospels are quite restrained in describing the physical suffering. You don't get a lot of detail about what it meant to be crucified. Obviously, the first reason you didn't need to have a lot of detail is because all the people that originally read this, all the people who were alive at the time, you did not have to explain to them how horrible a crucifixion would be because they would have seen it for themselves. They would have walked past people being crucified. You didn't have to give them any details. They knew the details more than anyone could ever describe. And also, what happened to Jesus physically was not unique, obviously. According to historians, around about 30,000 people were crucified in Israel at this period of time. Around about 30,000 men were crucified. 30,000 therefore endured the same pain, physical pain, the same physical kind of suffering that Jesus did. So it wasn't unique, the physical side of it. There were also a couple of thieves on either side of Jesus who were going through exactly the same agony. They were nailed to a cross exactly the same way that Jesus was. So the Bible doesn't go into details about the physical side of the crucifixion. But what the Bible writers do focus on is the abuse of Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, the ridicule. We see the word mock or mocked appearing quite a few times concerning Jesus. And that's really the unique feature of this crucifixion of Jesus. It is riddled with scorn and, and mockery and disdain. The crucifiers, the ones who actually nailed him to a cross, saw Jesus as a joke. In fact the, the historian Philo says that um, life was very harsh, uh, very cruel in, in those days in that part of the world. One of the things that people uh, would do would be to taunt those who in their words were, were mentally deficient. Um, that was quite a common thing. People would do that all the time. It's horrible, but that's what they would do. The teasing and the mockery, uh, mockery of those who were mentally challenged was quite common. And that kind of horrible mentality, that's what's really behind this treatment that we read of in the Gospels. This was quite normal for people in those days. And as far as the soldiers were concerned, Jesus fitted into that category of what they would call pretty much a lunatic, they would think. A fool. Somebody who is deluded. Somebody who thought himself to be a king. And then the Jews tried to pass off as some threat to Caesar. To them, the whole thing was a joke. The crucifixion of Jesus was a comedy. And we see that here in the passage, and particularly in the Gospels. In fact, from the time that Pilate handed Jesus over to be scourged and to be crucified, as we see starting at the end of verse 15, the treatment was nothing but an extended farce, a real joke. Summed up really in verse 18 when they began to say, Hail the King of the Jews. They obviously didn't mean that. That was a joke. Hail the King of the Jews. And then verse 19, they were kneeling and bowing before him. Again, they didn't mean it. It was a joke. The Romans hated the Jews. And that's why they loved to label this, uh, in their eyes, this deluded, this lunatic man as the king of the Jews. Because that also, as well as being a bit of a joke for them, it was also a slap in the face to all the Jews. Because the Romans were saying, this madman, this fool, this pathetic man, he's your king. So they're having a joke on behalf of the Jews as well as on behalf of Jesus. They love that joke. Pilate especially loved that. That's why he put it on the cross as an inscription. Jesus, 
the king of the Jews. That was a dig, not so much to Jesus, because Pilate just thought Jesus was a pathetic man. It was a dig to the Jewish people who would walk past and say, well, there's your king. He's on the cross. The Romans hated the Jews. The Jews hated the Romans. That's why there were zealots among the Jewish people who would go around trying to stab Romans. A bit like um, terrorists today. They were sneaking around. They didn't have bombs, but they did have knives that would kill as many Romans as they could. There were numerous insurrections against the Romans. Barabbas was part of an insurrection and quite likely he was aided and abetted by the other two thieves who would have been on the other side of his cross although they happened to be on the other side of Jesus cross so the Romans had no love for the Jews the Jews had no love for the Romans so the fact that this man Jesus who was no threat to anybody was labelled as their king made the joke all the more humorous of course, all of this was no surprise to Jesus because as we've seen in Mark chapter 10, verse 33 and 34, he described exactly what would happen. He described exactly how he would be treated. He said that he would be taken. He told his followers that he would be beaten, that he would be mocked, that he would be spat upon. He gave the details of all this ridiculing mockery. So he knew that it would happen and he told those who followed him now just to set the scene Jesus as we've seen in previous weeks is in the custody of Pilate remember he's gone through three phases of a Jewish trial first before Annas who used to be the high priest but is really now still in charge then Caiaphas his son-in-law who actually is the high priest at this time and then they had a third aspect of the Jewish trial that they did just in the daytime just to make it look legal because they've actually done the trial in the middle of the night, that was illegal so they do it again, they go through the motions in the daytime just to make it look as if they've done things right. So that is the three phases of the Jewish trial. Now we see that Jesus comes to Pilate and in the custody of Pilate there are also three phases of a Gentile trial. A secular trial in a sense. First of all he is before Pilate. Pilate declares he's innocent. He's guilty of nothing. Certainly no crime that concerns Rome. Pilate then pushes him off to Herod. Herod is quite interested. He's thinking he's going to get to see a few miracles. He's also a little bit worried because he's wondering if Jesus is actually John the Baptist come back from the dead. Remember Herod had killed John the Baptist. So he's really interested to see Jesus but Jesus doesn't even speak. Jesus doesn't even answer him. And he concludes he's pathetic. So he sends him back to Pilate. But obviously he's concluding that Jesus is no threat. Then we get the third phase of the Gentile trial back before Pilate. And that's where Jesus is now. Pilate gives the opportunity to the people to release a prisoner. The people choose Barabbas, uh, an insurrectionist, a thief, a murderer. But Pilate, he still doesn't like the idea that the religious leaders are forcing him, and that's really what they're doing, they're forcing him to have this man Jesus crucified who's done nothing wrong at all. A rather pathetic figure, really, in the eyes of Pilate. So he has Jesus scourged and he hands him over to be crucified. And that's how verse 15 ends. We come now to verse 16. Jesus hasn't been handed over to be crucified. The soldiers take him away to Pilate's tribunal and they take him to the palace, that's the praetorium. But before we get to that, I want to just give you a word about what happens in the meantime. 
All Mark does is refer to the scourging. He doesn't actually describe it. He's very restrained, as I've already said, in the physical aspect of the crucifixion and the scourging and so on. But it's after that Jesus is scourged that he's taken away into the palace. Pilate had an idea that maybe he could appeal to the, the sense of mercy and compassion on the part of the Jewish people. He thinks if he beats Jesus almost to a pulp, really, that's what happened. And then he shows Jesus and he says, look, you really want to kill this man? He's hoping that the Jews will say, oh yeah, okay, that's enough. He's hoping to satisfy their bloodlust. So Pilate's idea is to have Jesus beaten, bring him out, show him to the people, declare his innocence, and hope that the people will have had enough. So Jesus is handed over to be scourged. It says in Luke chapter 23 verse 16, Pilate says, I will punish him and release him. In other words, what Pilate's saying there is he's not guilty of anything. My sense of justice won't allow me to kill him, and I don't like the fact that I'm being told what to do by the religious leaders anyway, so I'll punish him, and then see how they cope with that. So Mark simply says Jesus was scourged. Horrible thing, wooden handle wrapped with leather, and on the end of the leather would be sharp bone and stone and metal, and they would thrash your back with that, and it was a horrific thing. But after the scourging, and before the crucifixion, we pick up the account in verse 16. Pilate hasn't rendered his final verdict. Jesus is still in the palace, in that condition, after being beaten, and he's in the care of the soldiers. And it's at this point that they decide to extend their comedy, this mockery, upon this, what they consider to be a witless man. The soldiers take him away to the palace, that's the praetorium, and they gather together the whole Roman cohort. Roman cohort members had come into the garden, remember, to arrest Jesus. A Roman cohort would be 600 soldiers, one-tenth of a legion. A legion was 6,000. So all of these soldiers gather together. They've been assigned to arrest Jesus, and now they've been assigned to take care of him, to guard him until he's crucified. Their task is simply to hold him as a prisoner until the final verdict is set. And then he'd be taken up the hill to be crucified. But in the meantime, these are the soldiers taking care of him. You'd think he'd be in Fort Antonia, actually, the military fort, but he's not. He's in the palace. The palace was built by Herod in 23 AD. Very impressive, um, massive uh, palace, um, but it was also the dwelling place of Roman governors. So whenever Roman governors came to Jerusalem, which they did at this time of the year, Pilate doesn't live in Jerusalem, but he's there, he'd stay in this praetorium. It's called a praetorium because the elite troops that he would bring were called the Praetorian Guard. So it would be titled the Praetorium. And Josephus, the historian, says, and Philo as well, says it was huge. Um, many bedchambers that could have as many as a hundred guests. So it's a very big place. It's a, a courtyard place. And there's a, very similar to the courtyard that the religious leaders had. So the building's on four sides with a courtyard in the middle. That's where Jesus is doesn't say he was scourged there but he probably was so he's there and the soldiers at this point decided to carry out their comedy and they want everyone in the fun obviously because verse 16 says they gathered together the whole Roman cohort now Jesus is beaten he can probably hardly walk it does not take 600 men to make sure he's not going to escape they don't gather together to take care of him they don't gather together to make sure he can't escape they gather together to have a bit of fun that's why they're gathering together. 
First of all, verse 17, they dressed him in purple, a mock royal robe. I know that it says in Matthew 27, verse 28, that it was a scarlet robe. And I know that Roman soldiers wore scarlet robes. So why does it say purple? Well, a scarlet robe worn by a Roman soldier at that uh, time would have faded in the brilliant sun. So what starts out as scarlet would eventually become purple. So if you had a robe that was getting on a bit, it would look purple. And that's all that's happening here. Officially, it is a scarlet robe by name. But this is an old one. It looks purple. And you can imagine, they wouldn't put, want to put a nice new clean one on him. They'd put an old one on him that's, that looks purple. They then twist a crown of thorns and they crush it onto his head. And some writers describe this particular plant as having thorns as long as 12 inches long. This is obviously mocking. It's uh, supposed to resemble the gold leaf wreath that the, the Caesar would wear. They're marking him out as a mock king. Matthew adds that in setting him up to look like a king, they also put a reed in his hand. They think that's a joke because it looks like a scepter. Kings often had scepters. And then Matthew tells us, Matthew 27 verse 29, they knelt down before him and they mocked him. And that's what Mark says in verse 13. They began to proclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. The fun now has descended into the worst kind of blasphemy. Jesus is, is being toyed with, in a sense, as if he's bereft of his senses. And it gets uglier. They kept beating his head with a reed. Now where would they get the idea to do that? Well, we see in Mark 14, verse 65, that the same soldiers who now had Jesus in their custody had also been there when he was under trial at Caiaphas, at Caiaphas' house. And the chief priest and the Sanhedrin there were spitting at him and beating him and blindfolding him and slapping him in the face. So the Romans had seen all this. And in a sense they've taken their cues from the religious leaders. The religious leaders did this to Jesus. Let's do the same. Let's have a bit of fun. And by the way, as I've already said, Jesus said that's exactly how it would happen. And Jesus wasn't the first one to describe this. Because if we go back 700 years to Isaiah, Isaiah 50 verse 6, for example, I gave my back to those who strike me, talking about the scourging, and my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard, I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Even today, spitting in somebody's face, it's an ultimate act of disdain. So even before Jesus had said, this is exactly what's going to happen, 700 years before, Isaiah and others said, this is what will happen. And they kneel before Jesus, mocking him like a king. It's a comedy. It's a parody. And they were doing this to God. God Almighty. It's at this point we turn to John 19 to get the full picture of what's going on. In John 19 verse 2 they come up to him and they say, Hail King of the Jews, and they slap him in the face. And then we read in verse 4, Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold... I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Now Pilate, as we've seen in the past, was basically a coward. But he still allowed Jesus to be abused and battered and spat upon. And, and every time he declares that he's innocent. So he's saying, this man is innocent. But I'm still going to beat him. Or get my men to beat him. And he thinks, this might be enough to satisfy the crowds. When they see Jesus covered in blood and in this horrendous condition, surely that will be enough. So he says, I'm going to bring him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. 
I don't know how those two go together. If you find no guilt in him, Pilate, why have you done this to him? Why have you beaten him if you find no guilt? But he's thinking, well, maybe the crowds will relent at this point. Another affirmation of Jesus' innocence there. Again, he's saying he's innocent. He just sees Jesus as helpless, as, as pathetic, but in need of a bit of compassion. So Jesus comes out. He's wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate says the famous phrase, Eke, Homer, uh, behold the man, verse 5. In other words, surely this is enough. So there he stands, a son of God, glory of heaven, covered with blood, bleeding, probably not even recognisable. And Pilate says, surely this is enough. Even for you. Remember, in these days, life was very harsh. But he's saying, surely even, even this is, is enough. Behold the man, he's your king. Does he like a threat to, to Rome, um, to you, to anybody? Look at him. Isn't this enough for an innocent man that you accuse of being a king and a threat to Rome? Pilate thinks they will now be satisfied. However, they've tasted the blood and they want more. Hardly had this appeal come out of Pilate's mouth and the chief priests and religious officers, it's always them leading the crowds, they're crying out, crucify him, crucify him. They're in amongst the crowd, sneaking around, like I said last week, or more specifically, it's actually Satan, through these religious leaders, getting the people to kill Jesus. And Pilate already knew why they wanted him dead, as we saw last week, because of envy. So Pilate now, is getting a bit frustrated, verse 6, he says, well you take him yourselves and crucify him, I find no guilt in him, you kill him. He doesn't want to do it. It's not that he has any respect for Jesus, it's not that he believes Jesus is who he is, he just thinks Jesus is pathetic, he just hates the fact that he's been told to kill an innocent man by these religious leaders who he hates anyway and they hate him. But remember he'd said earlier, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law, but they'd said to him, we're not permitted to put anyone to death, and this fulfilled the words of Jesus which he spoke, signifying what kind of death he was about to die. They didn't want the responsibility of killing him, the religious leaders. Of course that kept him from being stoned, because he would be crucified. The Jews would have stoned him, that's how they killed people. The Romans were the ones who crucified but Pilate basically was a desperate coward. He tries one more time to get them to take Jesus and he tries one more time to declare he's innocent. He says it again in John 19 verse 6. But their response is, we have a law and by that law he ought to die because he's made himself out to be the son of God. Now they get to the real issue there as far as they're concerned. He says he's the son of God. They're going to force Pilate to do this. They don't want to have the responsibility of killing him. They're worried about the crowds. They want the Romans to do it. They want Pilate to take responsibility. If you look at the Gospels, there are actually seven indictments against Jesus. First of all, they say, well, he's a threat because he said he's going to destroy the temple. Then they said, he's an evildoer. We see that in John 18, verse 30. Then they said, he's perverting the nation. You see how desperate they're getting. They're coming up with all these different things. Then they said, well, he's forbidding taxes to be paid. Then they said, he's stirring up the people. And then number six, he's claiming to be a king and therefore he's a threat to Caesar. None of that was true. None of it could be verified. None of it could be proven. It wasn't even rational or reasonable. So now they actually finally come to the one thing that was actually true. The one thing that could be said about him. And that was he made himself out to be the son of God. 
that's true the rest of it's just rubbish the rest of it is not true at all but this is true he did claim to be the son of God obviously because he was the son of God but for them well they said well that's blasphemy history records that they killed Jesus because he claimed to be the son of God in other words they killed Jesus for being who he was they killed him for being who he was it wasn't about politics it wasn't about the social order they killed Jesus because he was who he was they were of the kingdom of darkness they belonged to Satan they pretended to belong to God but they condemned God's son because he was God's son they killed him for being who he was that's how far from the truth they were well Pilate at this point is in a very difficult position it says in verse 8 when Pilate heard this statement he was even more afraid he didn't want to kill Jesus he certainly didn't want to kill Jesus because they wanted him to kill Jesus he doesn't want to be their pawn he, he, he hates them, they hate him, he doesn't want any of that he does have a sense of justice I mean he is the leading judge representing Rome but when they say he's the son of God that he claims to be the son of God he becomes more afraid it says why does he suddenly become more afraid he's already afraid of the Jews he's already afraid of what might happen he's already afraid of the delicate situation because of the previous offences that he'd committed against the Jews so what's he afraid of now well he's actually afraid that Jesus might actually be one of the gods one of the demigods that appears on earth you see in paganism and the Romans believed this too ancient religion there were many occasions when people said well the gods have come down to visit us we see an example of that in Acts chapter 14 where Paul and his companions were doing amazing things and the people said oh they're obviously the gods they've come down as they often do they were very superstitious and that's why Pilate's now afraid who is this man Jesus remember he's heard about all these miracles that this man Jesus has done he's heard that he's raised the dead and he's beginning to think well hang on is he one of the gods come down and spurred on by this new superstition he calls for a private meeting with Jesus and Jesus goes into the praetorium and in verse 9 it, he says to, to Jesus Pilate says where are you from now he's not asking where he's from really because he knows he's from Nazareth that's why he sent him to Herod he knows exactly where he's from physically he's not asking about geography he's really asking Jesus if he's some sort of God who's come down to earth but Jesus doesn't answer and you have to understand what's going on with Pilate he's really in a situation that he doesn't want to be in remember I told you of the uh, the great incidents in the past between Pilate and the Jews that really put him in the situation when he originally came into town in AD 26 he came with olive banners flying and they had images of Caesar and idols on the banners and the Jews were infuriated so they reported Pilate to Rome and he got in trouble with Caesar and Caesar said take it all down stop doing that so he was in trouble he was in a very serious situation and he's confronted again in this situation this is someone who says he's a god the Jews are saying we reject false gods this man must die and Pilate he knows exactly how the drama is playing out he knows this is really jealousy but he's thinking could he be some sort of god so he says where are you from and as I said Jesus gave no answer and Pilate says well, why don't you speak to me don't you know that I have the authority to release you 
or crucify you? Why aren't you speaking? And at this point Jesus does respond. He says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, the ones who delivered me to you have the greater sin. In other words, you've got the sin, you're guilty, but the ones who delivered me, they're even more guilty. In other words, Pilate, you can't do anything unless God allows it. Don't overestimate your power. You're guilty, but your guilt isn't as great as the ones who turned me over to you. Obviously, Jesus is there thinking about Caiaphas, Annas, the Sanhedrin, and the ones who delivered him over. They're the real criminals. I mean, Pilate obviously is in hell, but the hell of Pilate is not as severe as the hell of those who turned Jesus over to him. Because there are degrees of punishment in hell. So Pilate, he goes back to the people and he makes another effort to release Jesus. But the Jews cry out, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Now they've changed their minds again. They've gone away from the whole, Jesus is claiming to be a god, because they know the Pilate's not really interested in that anyway. The Romans won't crucify Jesus for that. So they're now they're saying, hang on, he's a threat to Caesar. Anyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. So they move from blasphemy now to this claim that he's a threat to Rome. Now that was the turning point for Pilate. He's not interested in Jesus if, as a god, although he's a bit worried about it. He doesn't care whether what he claims to be. But he does care if he's a threat to Caesar because he's worried about what's happened in the past. We're going to tell Caesar, is what they're saying to him. We're going to tell Caesar that you tolerate a rebel who's a threat to Caesar. And Pilate knew full well that he could not survive another scandal like this. Therefore, it says in verse 13, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and he sat down in the judgment seat. Now it's time for the final verdict. He brings out Jesus one last time and he sits down to make his verdict. It's the day of preparation for the Passover, we're told. Everyone's getting ready for the Passover. Passover begins at sundown that night. It's about the sixth hour, Roman time, that's nine o'clock. And Jesus is there and Pilate says, Behold your king. Again, he's having another dig at the people. It's a, an expression of disdain. And he still doesn't want to pronounce the verdict. So he lets them do it. Which is what they did, verse 15. They cried, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate finally, for the last time, he says, Shall I crucify your king? And then, in the most hypocritical, sick statement that you're going to find anywhere, the chief priests say, we have no king but Caesar. Remember, they hate Caesar. They don't recognise him as a king. They hate the Romans. They hate the fact that they're being oppressed. But they're willing to say, oh, we've only got one king, Caesar. And they're only saying that because they want to kill Jesus. They're only saying that because they know full well that then Pilate will have no other choice. That's what happens between the verses in Mark. Let's now go back to Mark. Mark 15 verse 20. It says, after they'd mocked him, after all this had happened, the final verdict had been given by the people. In other words, they took the purple robe off him, put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And then we read something interesting. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Suddenly this stranger appears from nowhere. According to Plutarch, the Greek historian, victims of crucifixion would carry their own cross piece. They'd have the, 
the main bit of the cross on their shoulders and they'd have to walk through the town, the city, wherever they're being crucified. The whole point of that was to say to the people, look, if you do this, whatever the person's done, this is what's going to happen to you. It was very much a show. They wanted people to see people being crucified. They wanted people to see them dragging the cross through the street. And there was always a crime tied around their neck. This is what I've done. This is why I'm being crucified. Watch yourselves. In Jesus' case, the crime was really being who he was. The crime was, this is who he is. That's his crime, which was later, as I say, placed on top of the cross. John 19 verse 17 says that Jesus began to carry his cross, but not for long. For some reason, I mean he's hungry, he's sleepless, he's lost a lot of blood, he's going too slow. But there's something else at play here, because God's timetable is on course. He needs to be on the cross, and he needs to die at three o'clock precisely in the afternoon. That's what God wanted. It's not what the Roman soldiers wanted, it's not what the religious leaders wanted. They didn't really care exactly what time he died, apart from the fact they wanted him sorted out before Passover. But God wanted him on the cross at three o'clock. Why did God want him on the cross at three o'clock? Because it was at three o'clock when all the Passover lambs would be killed in the temple. Jesus died at the same time that the Passover lambs died because he is the ultimate lamb. Who knows what motivated the soldiers? They could have allowed Jesus to carry on at whatever pace he could manage to get to the hill to be crucified, but God's working, they're impatient, he's going too slowly, so they get this man Simon of Cyrene and they said, right, you carry it, he's going too slow. He comes from Cyrene, his name is Simon, very common name. He'd come obviously from Cyrene because it's Passover. There were lots of Jews in Jerusalem coming from all sorts of places to celebrate the Passover. Cyrene is on the, the North African coast. Josephus tells us there was a large Jewish community there. So one of these Jews from Cyrene is there for the Passover. But all it says is he is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now that tells us quite a lot. That tells us you don't know him but he is the father of Alexander and Rufus. In other words, you know Alexander and Rufus. Now you don't, but the people that Mark was writing to did. Because Mark was writing to Christians in Rome. Mark is in Rome when he writes this, and he's writing to Christians in Rome. So he's saying to them, you don't know Simon, but you do know his kids. Simon of Cyrene, who carried the cross of Jesus, is the father of Alexander and Rufus, whom you know. These were two men known to the Roman believers in the church in Rome. According to Acts 11 verse 20, there was a very strong church in Cyrene by the 11th chapter. By the 13th chapter, the, the church had grown. And how did that church in Cyrene start? Well, probably by people like Simon, who'd met Jesus. In his case, obviously, literally, almost at the cross. And he was saved. He became a Christian. And the church was set up. And he went back to Cyrene. But then later, we don't know when, he obviously went to Rome. And he went there with his family. Because we read in Romans, chapter 16, verse 13, Paul says, Greet Rufus. So Rufus is mentioned again. A choice man in the church and his mother. That would be Simon's wife. But Simon isn't mentioned. So we don't know what's happened to Simon. Perhaps he died. Perhaps he was an older man, we don't know. He can't have been that old because he has to carry the cross, but the Christians at Rome then know Rufus and Alexander. 
in the middle of this comedy God is still working, there's divine providence, there's lots of things happening, there's all sorts of ties there, God is working, you've got Jesus on the cross at three, the church is starting in Cyrene, the people know about Alexander and Rufus, God is working, even though it's horrific, even though it's terrible, even though there's this mocking, God said it would happen before it happened, and he was there when it happened, he knew exactly how it would happen, he knew exactly when Jesus would be on the cross, he knew exactly when he would die, he knew exactly when he would go into the grave, he knew exactly when he would rise again. In the horror and the comedy and the sickness, it is absolutely sick when you think about it, despite all that, it went all according to God's plan because Jesus died in our place and that's how God orders history and next week we're going to get to the cross itself let's come to God in prayer Father we thank you for your word in our lives as we see this horrible situation as Jesus is mocked and abused it wasn't enough just to kill him they had to mock him first he went down to the very depths he suffered more than any man has ever suffered and he was even separated from the father and he died but he rose again on the third day and we thank you that because of this because of all that he went through that he went through it for us he went through it because of his love for us we thank you father help us to appreciate even more just what you have done for us and help us to respond in worshipping and accepting you accepting your word and living according to the word that you've given us and glorifying you as a result amen